I talked to a few of you. I know some of you, a lot of you haven't read the book, so I'm going to spend about 25 to 30 minutes sort of laying out the foundational ideas. Please remember it's a 300-page book, so it's not everything. I can't convey everything. but And then we can have discussions, and you can tell me your objections. <laughs> I mean, I just want to say that the basic idea is, you know how like Trump, every single day, he tells us how abused he is? how unfair it is, and it's so sad, and it's a witch hunt. But it's only because people are telling the truth about him. And that's part of the paradigm, when people who are in a supremacy position have, face resistance or are asked to question themselves, they say that they're being abused. On the other hand, he, well, he looks at a phenomenon, or his kind of people look at a phenomena of the white working class um, being desocialized out of their jobs and having their jobs globalized. And instead of blaming the people who are responsible for that, which is the white 1%, the, the, their pain and their anxiety is projected onto immigrants, people who have absolutely nothing to do with their pain. And this is the other side of that paradigm that I'm working with. So um, I just start with a little disclaimer here. This is not a book to be agreed with. It is not an exhibition of evidence. It is not a display of proof. It is instead designed for engaged and dynamic, interactive collective thinking where some ideas will resonate, others will be rejected, and still others will provoke the readers to produce new knowledge themselves. Like authentic conscious relationships, truly progressive communities, responsible citizenship and real friendship, and like the peacemaking that all these require, it asks you to be interactive. <coughs> So this book begins with something that almost everything begins with these days, which is a quote from James Baldwin. <coughs> Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. As I began this book during the summer of 2014, the human community witnessed systemic repetition of unjustified cruelty with exhaustion and frustration. We watched white police officers in Ferguson, Missouri and Staten Island, New York, murder two unarmed black men, Michael Brown and Eric Garner. We watched a rich and powerful professional football player, Ray Rice, beat his wife, Shanae, unconscious in an elevator. We watched the Israeli government mass murder over 2,000 Palestinian civilians in Gaza. It quickly became apparent that the methods we have developed collectively to date to understand these kinds of actions in order to avoid them are not adequate. Now, as a novelist, in order to create characters that have integrity, I apply the principle that people do things for reasons, even if they are not aware of those reasons, or even if they cannot accept that their actions are motivated instead of neutral and objective. Using this principle to examine those events, I have to ask myself what the white police officers the wealthy football player, and the militarized nation-state think is happening that produces and justifies their brutal actions. As video and witness accounts attest, neither Michael Brown nor Eric Garner did anything that justified the way they were treated by the police. Eric Garner sold loose cigarettes, and Michael Brown walked down the street. Both men tried to offer the police alternatives to cruelty, Eric Garner informed the police of the consequences of their actions on him when he told them 11 times while in an illegal chokehold 
I can't breathe. Michael Brown raised his hands in a sign of surrender and said, don't shoot. But something occurred within the minds, impulses, and group identities of the white police officers in that they construed the original non-event compounded with these factual and peacemaking communications as some kind of threat or attack. In other words, these policemen looked at nothing, the complete absence of threat, and there they saw threat gross enough to justify murder. Nothing happened, but these people with power saw abuse. We know from security camera footage taken in a casino lobby and elevator that Baltimore Ravens running back Ray Rice and his wife were having a quarrel. Now, as much as we don't like quarrels with our partners and wish they wouldn't happen, disagreement with one's lover is a normal part of human experience. It is impossible to live without it ever taking place. Intimate disagreement is, as they say, life. Yet Ray Rice experienced normal, regular conflict that exists in every relationship, family, and household in the world as so overwhelmingly unbearable and threatening that he hit his wife, knocking her unconscious, and dragged her limp body by the ankles out of the elevator, leaving her lying inert in a hallway. He looked at normal, everyday conflict and responded with extreme cruelty. He looked at the regular, even banal, expression of difference, and there he saw threat. The Israeli government has kept the Palestinian Gaza Strip under siege since 2005. This has made daily life unbearable for its inhabitants. In the late spring of 2014, the government of Benjamin Netanyahu escalated pressure on the already suffering Palestinians, and some factions within Gaza responded with rockets that were of such poor quality they had only symbolic impact. The Israeli government re-reacted in turn to this response with over 50 days of aerial bombing and ground invasion, causing mass death and massive destruction of literal cultural and psychological infrastructure. The Gazans were reacting to a state of injustice that the Israelis had created. The Gazans were resisting. They were refusing to go along with unbearable and unjustifiable treatment. The Israelis experienced this resistance to ongoing unfair treatment as attack. Brown and Garner did absolutely nothing but be black. Shanae Rice expressed normal conflict. Gazans resisted unbearable treatment. In all of these cases, the police, the husband, and the nation overstated harm. They took nothing, normal conflict, and resistance, and misrepresented these reasonable stances of difference as abuse. From the most intimate relationship between two people, to the power of the police, to the crushing reality of occupation, these actors displayed distorted thinking in which justifiable behavior was understood as aggression. In this way, they overreacted at a level that produced tragedy, pain, and division. It is this moment of overreaction that I wish to examine. My thesis is that at many levels of human interaction, there is the opportunity to conflate discomfort with threat, to mistake internal anxiety for exterior danger, and in turn to escalate rather than resolve. I will show how this dynamic, whether between two individuals, between groups of people, between governments and civilians, or between nations, is a fundamental opportunity for either tragedy or peace. 
conscious awareness of these political and emotional mechanisms gives us all a chance to face ourselves, to achieve recognition and understanding in order to avoid escalation towards unnecessary pain. However, it is not only the police, wealthy football players, or colonial occupiers who can feel abused in the absence of actual threat. It is not only the dominant who feel endangered when faced with normal conflict or when their own unjust actions are responded to with resistance. In fact, these distorted reactions occur in both the powerful and the weak, the supremacist and the traumatized, in society and in intimacy. In arenas in which real abuse could conceivably take place, there are those who feel persecuted and threatened even though they are not in danger, and they often lack help from those around them to differentiate between the possible and the actual. Bullies often conceptualize themselves as being under attack when they are the ones originating the pain. Everywhere we look, there is confusion between conflict and abuse. If a person cannot solve a conflict with a friend, how can they possibly contribute to larger efforts for peace? If we refuse to speak to a friend because we project our anxieties onto an email they wrote, how are we going to welcome refugees, immigrants, and the homeless into our communities? The values required for social repair are the same values required for personal repair. And so this discussion must begin in the most micro-experience. Confusing being mortal with being threatened can occur in any realm. The fact that something could go wrong does not mean that we are in danger. It means that we are alive. <clears throat> so, on a freezing snowy day in 2014, I was invited to a workshop run by a social worker named Catherine Hodes. A native New Yorker in her 50s, Hodes is an experienced professional with over 20 years of development and leadership in what was once known as the battered women's movement, but is now called intimate relationship abuse advocacy. Now, intimate abuse is a real crisis for New York. The Times reports that the police receive 284,000 intimate abuse calls a year, which is about 800 a day, and make 46,000 intimate abuse arrests every year. Now, Hodes had boldly started to notice that clients were increasingly confused about what the word abuse actually means, that it was overused. The paradox is, of course, that many women are unable to recognize that they are being abused. And many women cannot get acknowledgement of this reality from others. Yet, at the very same time, Hodes also found that some women were applying the term abuse to situations that were really something else. Increasingly, she noticed that women who did not know how to resolve a problem sometimes described that feeling with the word abuse. So this session had been convened to address that trend directly with service providers. Now, Hose's focus was to help social workers differentiate between abuse and conflict so that they could be effective and directed in helping clients in ways that would speak to their real experiences. While identifying abuse is essential to saving lives and providing services, differentiating conflict from abuse 
is also essential to meeting clients' real need to learn how to face and deal with obstacles and to develop truthful assessments of themselves and others. Quote, differentiating between power struggle and power over, Hodes explained, is the difference between conflict and abuse. So abuse is power over and conflict is power struggle. As we students discussed and grappled with this insight over the course of the day, my understanding consistently deepened. While obviously abuse takes place all the time where a person is being controlled by another or by a group in a manner that the recipient has not contributed to and cannot change, the word abuse has become overused. People may feel angry, frustrated, upset, but this does not mean they are being abused. They could instead be in conflict. Therefore, the fact that one person is authentically suffering does not inherently mean that the other party is to blame. People may not know how to make things better, how to look at their own participation, how to deal with feeling badly about themselves. They may not know how to understand their own actions and are afraid of the implications of their actions on the meaning of their lives. And this may be devastating, tormenting, and painful. But this is not being abused. It does not get resolved by organizing the punishment of another person. People may be part of negative friendships, families, or communities who attack outsiders instead of being self-critical. They may be receiving encouragement to blame and scapegoat others. They may live within groups, cliques, relationships, or families that do not tolerate the admission of mistakes and that reinforce supremacy ideologies about each other in order to maintain illusions of righteousness. This pressure, resulting in the action of collectively deflecting blame, does not mean that the person being blamed is abusive. In fact, it says nothing at all about that person except that they are being blamed. Now it's interesting because over the course of the workshop, Hodes delineated for us how increasingly perpetrators have seized control of the legal apparatus that's supposed to be used to protect victims. And she told us that um, increasingly perpetrators are the first to call the police, to threaten legal action, to send lawyer letters, or threaten or seek restraining orders as part and parcel of their agenda of blame and control. And for example, the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs 2014 report on LGBTQI intimate partner abuse noted that the police misarrest the survivor as the perpetrator of violence in over half of all queer domestic abuse arrests misidentifying the perpetrator in same-sex relationships as the one who is butch, of color, not a mother, not a citizen, from another culture, or HIV positive. Now, one of Hodes' many valuable suggestions is to lower the bar for what must happen in a person's life for their suffering to be acknowledged. Quote, the current paradigm is encouraging all of us to think we are in abusive relationships, Hodes explained, and if you are not in an abusive relationship, you don't deserve help. Being abused is what makes you eligible. But everyone deserves help when they reach out for it. This is a strikingly humane idea that the collapse of conflict and abuse is partly the result of a punitive standard in which people are made desperate yet ineligible for compassion. 
This is a non-cynical reading of a human condition in which people who have suffered in the past or find ourselves implicated in situations in which we are afraid to be accountable fear that within our group acknowledging some responsibility will mean being denied our need to be heard and cared for. So we fall back on the accusation of abuse to guarantee that we will not be questioned in a way that confirms these fears. Especially vulnerable to this are those of us who experience profound disapproval and criticism early on as children who are later locked into self-righteous families or supremacy communities with negative bonds. Ultimately, the blurring of conflict and abuse, Hode says, is epidemic and leads to everyone identifying as a victim, which is paralyzing the search for solutions. I was moved and enlightened by her insight that conflicted people have to prove that they are eligible for compassion. No one can negotiate without being heard. Shunning, therefore, is designed to maintain a unilateral position of unmovable superiority by asserting one's status as abused and the implied consequential right to punish without terms. This concept of having to earn the right to have pain acknowledged is predicated on a need to enforce that one party is entirely righteous and without mistake, while the other is the specter, the residual holder of all evil. If instead conflicted people were expected and encouraged to produce complex understandings of their relationships, then people could be expected to negotiate instead of having to justify their pain through inflated charges of victimization. So <clears throat> at this point I started to think about, you know, what is the history of this moment? Like how did we get here? And that's what the next chapter is. I'm just going to summarize that for you. So um, when I was born in 1958 in New York City, many, many, many years ago, if a woman was raped, she could not get a conviction unless she had what? Anyone know? A witness. I know it sounds insane, but that was the truth. Her testimony alone was not enough grounds for conviction. So by the time we go into the 1960s and the founding of the feminist movement against male violence, it's a time when the state is literally the enemy of women. And also there were almost no women in the state, you know, in terms of like lawyers, judges, all of this kind of thing. So that movement did not look to the state for solutions to their problems. They were alienated from the state. And that movement also arose at a time when globally there were a lot of radical movements around the world looking for very big transformations of how we relate to each other. So like anti-colonial movements, gay power, women's liberation, black power, etc. So when you go back to the documents of the feminist movement against male violence in the 1960s, you see that they attributed male violence against women and children to three things. Patriarchy, poverty, and racism. So they saw it as structural. And they have almost no focus on punishing men. The entire focus is on um, an, um, empowering women. So most of their programs are things that today we would call restorative justice, but th those words didn't exist at the time. But like, for example, so they look for solutions that did not involve the state. So for example, abortion was illegal, so there became illegal abortion networks, underground abortion networks. Women took self-defense classes. If you were raped, you would call a rape crisis hotline, and there'd be a woman on the other end who had been raped. There was nothing about the police or the state or anything like that. In the 70s, the demand for these services became enormous, much more so than grassroots volunteer organizations could support. 
And a, a program called CETA was put into place by the federal government where the people who ran these programs could get their salaries paid by the feds. But when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, which is sort of like D-Day for all the problems that we're having now, one of the very first things he did, I think in the first three weeks of getting elected, was he eliminated CETA. So a lot of these programs had become funding dependent, and they fell apart. In the 1980s, you see the U.S. government take on the role of being the person, the entity that's going to address violence. But this produces a crisis in meaning because the U.S. government is one of the greatest sources of violence in the world. So they can't be the people in charge of stopping violence. Plus, they're not interested in patriarchy, poverty, and racism. I mean, the U.S. government relies on patriarchy, poverty, and racism. So you start seeing this focus on individual people becoming punished by being incarcerated, and they're usually people of color, poor people, etc., who the state has more access to. And the enforcers of these laws are the police. Now, we all know what's wrong with the police. We all understand the racism of the police. But even more interestingly, the occupation of police officer in the United States is the job with the highest rate of domestic violence, including NFL players. So the police are the least likely to be able to solve your problems. You know, they're not the people you should call when you have a problem. And every year we see these stories of the guy has a fight with his son and he calls the police and the police come and they kill the son. And this is like a common scenario. But in the cultural, corporate cultural zeitgeist, the same story was being propagandized. So that's the same time when things emerge like law and order special victims unit. Where week after week we see like one completely innocent victim and one totally evil predatory predator. And the solution is the police. So there's a huge move to, to tell people that it's not for communities to solve problems. It's not for people to help each other with their anxieties and help each other calm down and negotiate. No, it's we should be calling the state when we have problems. The state should be coming in and punishing the perpetrators because we are clean. And this story starts to emerge. So then later in the book, I have two case studies that I think really show the, this apparatus. The first is that I have a long analysis of the 2014 Israeli war in Gaza. And you don't have to look far when you're looking at Israeli state rhetoric to see how they use abuse tropes. They're constantly describing themselves as abused, they're being attacked, they're under threat. I mean, they are the perpetrators. They are one of the largest military state apparatuses in the world. Their, their opponents are Palestinians who are a subordinated people who are highly endangered and yet are positioned as dangerous. So it's a very, very classic example of using that language. But another example that I go into that I think is fascinating and I'm completely riveted by even now is this new global phenomenon called HIV criminalization. Now, you know, we're in a moment where medication exists in the world for people who are HIV positive who, if they can access that medication, can live a normal lifespan. So you would think the stigma around HIV would go down, but no, it's going up. It doesn't make any sense, because really the safest person to have sex with, if you want to avoid HIV, is a positive person who's on medication, because they're virally suppressed and they can't infect you. The most dangerous person is a person who doesn't know their status. Yet, you know, th that would make sense. But what we're seeing instead is many governments, you know, from Taiwan, I mean, it's all over the world, um, are saying that if you are HIV positive, you're required by law to disclose your status to your sexual partner or risk incarceration, even if no one gets infected, even if you're virally suppressed and you couldn't possibly infect them, even if you use a condom. 
So one of the worst laws in the world on this is in Canada. Now, do not be fooled by Canada, people. <laughs> I don't know where they got their good reputation, but they don't deserve it. <clears throat> so when I was preparing my research, I did an article for Slate magazine on HIV criminalization in Canada. It's where 250 people have already been incarcerated under this law. Most of them have not infected anybody. So the first thing as a good journalist, I'm like, who are these 250 people? When I look at them, I find out half of them are black. Now, this is Canada. There's no black people in Canada. Okay, it's 2% black. So you're like, oh, this is a racist, anti-immigrant measure, right? But more for our purposes. What they've done is they've taken this category of people, HIV-negative people, who for 30 years have been conceptualized of as people who are responsible for keeping themselves negative, and telling them, hey, you're not responsible. You are potentially criminally wrong. So any anxiety you have about sex or love or relationships or HIV, let's escalate that anxiety. We're not going to ask communities to help each other calm down. We're going to make it worse so that you pick up the phone and call the police. So what they're doing is they're creating a whole new class of people, HIV negative people, who now have the ability to incarcerate a whole new class of people, HIV positive people. And this, and so I, what I'm ultimately arguing is that when we abandon responsibility for our own anxieties and the anxieties of our communities, and when we abandon our ability to be accountable for our own participation in conflict, we enhance the power of the state. Okay, thank you very much. So now I just want to open it up for disagreements, comments, questions, whatever you have to offer. You have to read it. <laughs> I've read it, so I can ask a question. Uh, so I have a really specific question for you. I want advice. I'm hoping for advice from you. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm a young adult novelist, mm -hmm. and within the past year I sort of ran afoul of what you would call it toxic community, or at least a toxically reinforcing community. I think I used the word bad. Okay, bad. bad. <laughs> um, and, and I was sort of shunned largely, and that shunning continues to this day in a lot of ways. I struggled with how to deal with it, and my publisher and many other people told me to effectively disappear from the world in the hopes that it would just, that it would burn itself out. It hasn't. So at this moment, I'm trying to decide between writing about it, or sort of attempting to find a way, or continuing to wait. And I wonder if, if you, because you talked a lot I, about I don't have a solution for that. I mean, the best thing is to try to talk to people. I'm assuming this is happening online. More or less. I mean, you try to talk to people in person if you can. Like, you know, I have trolls on this book sure. who are like wild. I mean, they're like, this yeah. book is about telling people to call the police. Like, that was put on Tumblr, and it was retweeted hundreds of times. Mm. And I would come on and say, like, hi, it's Sarah. <laughs> this is not accurate. And they'd say, like, don't say people aren't accurate. You know, or like, they tag me. <laughs> they tag me on Twitter. You know, Shulman is a known abuser. She punched her girlfriend in the face and broke her nose, which never happened, obviously. So then someone else is like, well, how, how do you know that? And they're like, it's well known. But they tag me. So I'm like, hi, you know, this is not accurate. And then they're like, you're stalking me. <laughs> so there's all that. But a few people I have said, like, hi, do you want me to send you a copy of the book? 
And a few people have sent me their addresses and I send it to them and those people have stopped. But some people say, I don't want to give you my address. And then you can't do anything. So, you know, the other thing though is more like spiritual. I'm not a spiritual person at all, but on some level, okay, it's like on Facebook. Like I have 15,000 people following me on Facebook and I've never blocked anybody. Because at a certain point, I just say like, wow, that person is writing something I really don't like, so what? And just wait for it to scroll away. And at some level, if you could like read all this crazy stuff that people are writing about you but not saying to your face and just go like, it's sort of the only way out of it. Because they don't show up in person. I don't know if any of you are here who are doing that, but <laughs> I don't know. But I've yet to have not one crazy person has shown up at, with those kinds of things. So I don't think they come in person. In my community, it tends to be the other authors, horrifyingly, who are the perpetrators. So it makes it a little... A little well, if you know them, try to talk to them in person. That's all. I mean, first, in person, it just makes things better. You know, and one of the things I talk about here is like, if you text somebody five times in a row, it's harassment. But it's actually like less than two minutes of conversation, you know, so talking is, is the best. It's not a guarantee, but it can help. I just want to say, this is not like self-help for leftists. But, you know, it's a, it's an, yeah, it's an analysis of state power and how the state gets power. So I just want to, want to always keep it in that realm of possible. Yeah. Other people? Yes, Eric. Sure. I, um, just if you could elaborate, first of all, I, I learned so much from you, uh, most of my dream. <laughs> but one of the things I, I am curious about is that you, you made the point that uh, two of your examples were, there was this perception of justifiable harm, but it wasn't, wasn't credible. Um, but I wanted, wanted you to elaborate a little more on how the Israel situation, where it seems to me that there is a community that has um, resisted accepting uh, Israel's <coughs> to exist, how that is not an actual threat and declared sense of um, uh, danger. Okay, well, I'm not going to get totally into this, because this can go on forever. No, I just want to forget. But there's, there's a concept in Palestinian politics uh, called normalization. And normalization is when we take absurd relationships, like the relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed, and we pretend that it's normal. So like in, in Israel-Palestine politics, it's like when people say, both sides. Or, you know, what, what, what you're describing, I would describe as resistance to unjustified occupation. That, that's what I see. So, so we are analyzing the situation differently, but I would use different language. Okay, thanks. Yes? Um, I read the book, and okay. uh, I, uh, there was a New York Times editorial, I think it came out like three days ago, this one that my partner wrote an article about, there um, all these hearings going on in Congress about um, like Silicon Valley kind of becoming this arbiter of like, the political situation mm -hmm. now, which is like people trading fake news and um, and basically everybody's kind of getting this information or like inflating this information so that's what, like now in this political situation we're now. Um, and she used a lot of language I think from you know speaking about like scapegoating and kind of looking at this as like um, 
this almost being kind of like a witch hunt in a way, whereas like in her perspective, everybody should be looking at like how we are contributing to the kind of like disintegration of democracy by like trading in this kind of media way, and kind of like being more, I guess, aware of the way that like people are consuming content. But I, I'm just describing the article, but I'm kind of I'm curious what you think about <clears throat> like I mean you're talking about like. Um, like nation states, you know, being in conflict, but I'm curious about like when the scapegoat becomes this kind of supranational thing. Like, I, I don't know. Like, oh, I, I mean, I just know that, that it, apparat the apparatus of dominance describes itself as abused when it's resisted. This is, you know, everywhere, whether it's in your family or whether it's corporations that control our culture. But in terms of specifics of the, the Facebook situation, I really don't have anything brilliant to say about it. I mean, I don't know enough. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, Jane. Well, this is not about state power, so just reject the questions if you're not into them. But I do have two, and maybe you can pick one. And there are about moments in the book um, that I was either confused or wanted a little more. and. One of the examples that you give, it's been a while, I read the book right when it came out, but um, is it, it seems like it's kind of a call to some self-analysis around um, uh, in erotic relationships where there might be some desire that's being felt by the person who feels victimized. And I think you give the example of somebody who projects onto the other that they've been abused when in fact they're uncomfortable with their own attraction. Are you remembering this part of the book? I would, I mean, if you can find the, the, the text, because that summary doesn't feel exactly right. Okay. It just stuck with me because mm -hmm. I couldn't quite wrap my head around what that situation looked like. But I thought you were saying that sometimes part of where this is coming from is that Somebody, oh, well, I did somebody expresses attraction to you and you're offended by it and mm -hmm. one of the reasons you might be offended by it is because you're actually attracted and un uncomfortable with your attraction. Okay, so there's two things there. Okay. So the first thing is that one of the things I'm worried about in the current sex panic that we're in, and you can read Jane Ward and Fully Bloggers, she wrote a really good column about it, is that Telling someone that you're sexually interested in them, when it's not in any way a barter because you have power over them, is not abusive. Like, the fact that people are attracted to us, if, if it's an environment where we can say that we're not interested and that's the end, mm -hmm. is fine. It's not, you know, so like when you look at some of the lists of the celebrity things, like some things are so criminal and so vile, and some things are like, he invited me to his hotel room. Well... That's not the problem area. It's when you say that you don't want to go if there's a retribution. That's the problem area. So I, what I'm, I'm concerned about the expression of desire is seen as inherently abusive. Now sometimes we feel very, very anxious when other people are attracted to us. But I am, and that is legitimate, because one of the things I'm looking at is how can we validate our own pain and our own suffering and have it be acknowledged without its recognition being predicated on punishing another person mm. if the issue is conflict, mm. power struggle. So sometimes we feel bad if we think someone is attracted to us, but that may not be because them being attracted to us is the problem. So let me give a, a larger example. Like, two, two people could have had two separate sexual experiences that were identical. And one person could be devastated for life, authentically. Mm 
And the other person could be like, oh well. The reason, I mean, not in, in abuse cases, but I'm talking about gray zone. And, and gray zone is where all most of these things that we have to grapple with live. The reason that they have such different reactions to the same experience is because the experience itself does not have an inherent value. It's what we bring to it from our histories, from our biologies, from our characters, from our, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's why, in order to validate people's suffering and pain at where they're at, we have to look at the specifics of individual experiences. So we have these standards that don't, that don't work because they're not relevant to everybody. And that's why I think we're getting in a lot of trouble. So, you know, that's why, like, Catherine Hodes suggests that we look at things like, what is the order of events? Hmm. Order of events is incredibly important. Like, I now use that for my own life. I have a fight with somebody, I'm like, what are the order of events? Well, she did this shitty thing to me, and then she did this crappy thing, and then I kind of done. And then she does <laughs> I get this part about myself, I, like, smush it, you know what I mean? But if, you, if you're friends, if the job of being a loyal friend, if our, if, our, if our definition of love and loyalty is not that we reinforce our people in hurting others, which is the way it is right now, but that we express love by helping each other take responsibility for our contribution to the problem without abandoning them, it would help so much. Because right now, if you tell your friend, like, I'm having this problem, but I've contributed to it, their level of support for you drops. But actually, it should be higher because you're because we should all be happy to learn that we're contributing to the problem because then we can change it. But instead, we're miserable to learn that because we only get compassion if we're totally victimized. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Could you talk about how um, since the example of sexual encounters have been brought up, how sort of blurring the distinction between uh, discomfort, assault, abuse, violent abuse ends up uh, aligning itself with state power. So, I mean, I can see this specifically in some, in some examples where the state is mediating the case, but I've just been thinking about since largely, culturally, we're having this conversation, and um, there's not much attention on how the way we discuss it is parallel or intersecting with the way the state deals with these issues. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I can't do it in a big way, but I, I'm, I'm all about like specifics and particular specific situations and stuff. So let's talk about something that we're familiar with, the Columbia University case. You know, Emma Sukovitz, the artist who carried around the mattress that case. So, you know, she made an argument that I think is completely legitimate and reasonable that she doesn't want to have to walk around the campus and see her perpetrator all the time. However, if that person is removed, let's say expelled, where does he go? He doesn't just like fly off to the moon. He goes into the world of women who don't go to Columbia University and have no apparatus to appeal to. So it's a class-based solution that kicks him out of the gated country club, and that's great for everyone who's in the club. Mm -hmm. But now you've got this guy who's stigmatized and angry and can't earn a living and all this stuff, and he's out in the world and nothing has been done. Because one of the things that we're learning from all the scandals that are happening right now is that the number of male offenders is enormous, and in every single milieu. And we have to deal with male offenders. It can't just be that we shun them and exclude them or incarcerate them. It has to be dealt with. So, you know, 
large corporate universities like Columbia or Stanford that have all this money, they are the ideal places to try out strategies for dealing with male offenders. It just seems like that's the obvious answer. And also, when you analyze all of these cases, there's a certain, there's a small percentage of people who are real predators and really enjoy breaking people's will. But a lot of people are in gray zone, you know, and that's the thing that we that we have the best chance of of helping people change if we can understand the specifics. You know, when there's a conflict, you have like right now when there's a it's a conflict we, we stop talking to each other, but we need more communication. Because the thing we need to know is why does each party think this is happening? Not just what, what do they think happened, but why do they think it's happening? You know, everyone has to be heard from so that we can understand the specifics. Anybody else? Okay then. Oh yeah. Hi. Uh, I was wondering if I could just read a quote that I don't agree with. I've read the quote, but I just wanted to get. Okay, sure. It's just it's interesting because uh, it's a book about trolling and the alt right and how it affected. Are you reading from my book or somebody else's? No, book? someone else's book. Oh. There's a bridge there, and I just okay. Okay. Like, oh, you don't have to. No, just it was not too long. Yeah. Okay. It's not that long. It's a. Uh, it's been said that liberals don't believe in actual politics anymore, just bearing witness to suffering. The cult of suffering, weakness, and vulnerability has become central to the contemporary liberal identity politics, as is enacted in spaces like Tumblr. Well, I think I addressed that in a really much larger way already. I mean, I'm trying to say it in a little more, more fun way. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, oh, Eric, it's not going to be about Israel Palestine. I was wondering, there's a question you made about interaction that individuals engaging directly with one another is possible. Because as you know, we live in a world where face-to-face um, -face has been almost discredited to the extent that we use our social media. And when you try to engage in a rational conversation, you mentioned that yourself on your own and when the response is attack or misrepresentation, um, how does one apply that framework towards reconciliation? I mean, if you know the person and you're getting a fight with them over email, pick up the phone. I'm serious. As soon as that starts happening, you know, like, you've got to pick up the phone. It's just, it's ridiculous to break up with some a friend because of email or Facebook. It's so stupid. I just talk to them. I know, you know, I, I, it's not going to always fix it, but I think the chances of understanding each other better are higher. Yes, Charles. Um, just want to kind of extend things a little, a little longer. So, um, there have been a lot of suicides lately. People that I know, and I just think in general, it feels like it's almost epidemic. And you talk about and the denial of mental illness on page 161 about you know, suicide. Um, you say um, suicide is often a failure of community, and only it as inevitable as a defense against that failure. And that reminds you, you know, when people say, oh, he or she must be in a better place, which, of course, then reminds you of, you know, we had another mass shooting today, and people saying, you know, pray for, you know, pray for the victims. 
Well, I mean, I'm not religious at all, yeah. so. But, um, no, the reason I, I talk about that is, like, right now, if you think that someone is, is having a kind of, you know, emotional pain, if you say so, it's considered an attack or mean. Because the stigma around mental illness is so high mm -hmm. that people, we keep people in their pain mm -hmm. and keep from discussing it with them because it's seen as abuse to, to discuss. And it's like, it's just about bringing down these stigmas and bringing down this idea of perfection that is controlling all of our interactions and being allowed to say, you know, this person is HIV positive, this person has anxiety, you know, this person is, thinks that people are hurting them, let's see, let's find out what, the, you know, how much they're suffering, what's actually happening, you know, all this kind of making things more complex and living in the gray zone of nuance. It's just essential because we're a mess right now. Like everything is so screwed up and we're not communicating and there's a lot of cruelty in community. Enormous amount of cruelty and it, and it's really it's not helping us. Yeah, when and let's end there. Um, are you seeing or have you seen any models of restorative justice that you feel are really working? Well, you know I, I started to research that and then I stopped. I decided not to go into it because what I found was some of them really do work, and so, but some of them are very vigilante. And some of them actually create enormous amounts of pain and are mean and don't solve the problem. So I decided this is somebody else's is book, you know. I mean, you know, so um, I want to leave you with some. I'll tell you something funny. So I'll say. I just want to, <laughs> and we can go from there. Um, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about what it was like to publish this book because it's been a very interesting experience. When I wrote it, I couldn't get it published, and no publisher in the United States would publish it. Like, not university presses, not left presses, not commercial presses. Nobody, nobody, nobody. And I finally realized it was because. Palestine and HIV are subjects that are so filled with anxiety in the United States that they can't be used as examples for larger structures. They can only be these discrete things that don't relate to anything else. So finally this queer press in Vancouver, Canada said that they would publish it and I thought, okay, I'm like, you know, 30 people are going to read this book, but whatever. So then I knew it was going to come out and you know, most of, when I write books, like I don't enter into ongoing conversations. All my books are like a brand new idea because the thing that I like to do is to sort of look at structures that haven't been articulated and, and that's my job as a nonfiction writer and my job as a fiction writer is to represent how people see their own life. Not how I wish they saw it, but how they actually see it. So, so, but the problem when you construct a new idea is that it could be kind of crazy. And like one of my great heroes is Wilhelm Reich, you know, who observed that sexual repression is necessary to fascism, um, which is an idea that is actually one of the most radical ideas and one of the reasons he got kicked out of, you know, the Communist Party, the psychoanalytically, he got kicked out of Sweden even, because nobody liked <laughs> that idea. But then he tried to prove it biologically and it got crazy, you know, and I thought, oh no, maybe this book is crazy, maybe that's why nobody liked it. And I spent three months in therapy saying, my book is crazy and I'm crazy and my book's going to come out and everyone's going to realize it's crazy. And then I got this blurb from Bell Hooks and she liked it and I thought, it's not crazy. <laughs> So then like it came out, and usually when a book comes out, you get like a Publishers Weekly, a Kirkus, a Library Journal, you get these pre-publication reviews, and I got none. 
And I thought, oh my God, no one's going to read this. But then, like, people started to write about it online. And they started, I started to discover sites I had never heard of, like Goodreads. I didn't even know it existed. But there were like hundreds of reviews. And I started, so I had a book tour in Canada because the publisher was Canadian. So they had money from the Canada Council. And like, you know, more and more and more people were coming, 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 coming. All these people I had never seen before. And it was because of call-out culture, which I don't even mention. I mention it once in one sentence. I wasn't even thinking about it. But people were just coming because they were sick and tired of just tearing, tearing each other down as their mode of relation, you know? And it was just very, very fulfilling. And here we are a year later, and it's in its fifth printing. And, you know, it's like it just proved to me that it's worth it to even to, to, to do the work, to publish it in some very weird press and whatever, because, I don't know, if it's on target and people care about it, it will have a life. And so that was a very encouraging experience. So thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.